Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We've got an expert in the in the studio right now, Jeff Rosenberg. He is BlackRock's chief fixed income strategist. And uh, Gina, you know, one of the things I want to understand is, are people really willing to buy that 30-year at 3.02%, Jeff? Because unless you're going to trade it, you're going to get stuck with a pretty low yield for a long time. And if you are going to trade it, you have to find someone else that's willing to get stuck with that low yield. <laughs> So there's a couple of perspectives there, Pim, and it's a great question. It's a question we get a lot, but you're seeing the reason why people want to own that 30-year on a day like today. Duration, having something in your portfolio that moves in the opposite direction of risky assets like equities is is really the reason why people own that. So it's less about the absolute level of yield. You're not really thinking about the 30-year treasury as an income source. You're thinking of it as a stabilizer. And on days like today, it's really showing its value that it goes up a lot when risk goes up and people own it in their portfolio for its diversification value more than its absolute level of yield. Would you sell it? I mean, if you own some 30 years in your portfolio, I mean, would you sell some of them today and take advantage of the turmoil? No, no, we're not going to think about sort of the 30 years trade as, as, as a trade or the 30 years uh, treasury as a, as a trading strategy. This is really about portfolio construction and building portfolios that are resilient over longer time periods. This is about what's the right percentage allocation in my portfolio to equities, to my risky assets. And then given that percentage that's relevant to me in my life cycle of investing for my risk tolerance, I can add some diversification in terms of adding some 30-year treasuries. And I'm holding that portfolio con concentration relative to my equity allocation. If I then decide I want to de-risk my portfolio because I think like events today, Italy, it's showing me there's a lot more risk in the world. I want to take the risk out of my portfolio. Then maybe, yeah, I take the risk out of my equities. And then maybe I don't need that 30-year ballast as much. And hey, one of the areas we've been talking to investors about, look at what you can do in the front end of the U.S. yield curve today. You can get three, three and a half percent yield in some attractive investment grade areas of of the market maybe that's why i sell my 30 year because i'm getting rid of my equity risk that's a de-risking of the portfolio moving into more like cash and cash equivalents that's a very different kind of strategy talking about the overall portfolio not just looking at you know these one day moves Speaking of these cash and cash equivalents, how do you anticipate all of this volatility in emerging markets, in Italian credit, in Italian bonds all over Europe? How do you anticipate that ultimately impacting the Fed decision process and the front end of the curve? Because it seems the front end is likely to experience a lot of interesting activity throughout the year if this becomes a big problem. Yeah, and and that's really the key, the key point to your question is is the if how big of a problem and by problem from the Fed's perspective what they're going to be thinking about is does the Italian political risk rise to the point of affecting the real economy outcomes in the U.S. Does this event cascade into changing people's views on their investment on their spending 
on their confidence, right? And the Fed thinks about that in terms of what they'll measure as financial conditions. This is a financial conditions tightening, meaning it's making it harder for companies, individuals to to produce real economic activity. Now, where the Fed had been and where the markets are is that financial conditions have been very, very accommodative. So this is a movement upwards from very, very loose financial conditions, highly accommodative financial conditions, to a slight tightening. On the margin, that reduces maybe some of the odds, but at this point probably doesn't dislodge the Fed off of the path of three to four hikes. Maybe it reduces a little bit of the four hike scenario. Markets are pretty much priced for three. And that's where I think you'll see this sort of settle in for the front end of the curve. Right. Jeff, if the dollar continues this uh, this path of, of, of strength, right? I mean, 115.45 against the euro. Not only is everyone going to be able to afford to go to Europe for a vacation, but uh, isn't that going to just draw even more funds into the United States and you're going to end up with this kind of cycle that chases its own tail? Yeah. So, you know, the strength of the dollar is another kind of source of tightening financial conditions, because when the dollar is stronger, it makes everywhere else in the world harder to finance their debt. Remember, most of the world's debt is denominated in dollars. So strengthening in the dollar is good for us, good for the European vacations, and as, as the, you just mentioned, but it's bad for most of the other countries in the world. So I think what you're seeing this morning is a little bit more about euro weakness than it is dollar strength, because it's about increasing increasing the odds of some disruptive political events showing up in Europe. But certainly dollar strength on the back of the older story, which was we have a better growth story, we have a better interest rate differential, is a, another headwinds to global investing. And so when we think about portfolio construction, we think about global equities, for example, this is a little bit of a headwinds. We think about emerging markets investing. You know, First and foremost, it's a currency risk. And so the currency risk showing up kind of brings some more attractive Activeness back into the U.S. markets. Okay, so you hit on a really key topic, and I think that is currency risk in the dollar. And I'm looking at your strategy, and you've got sort of this neutral view on emerging markets. Talk us through how you see that playing out, how you see this dollar strength playing out in emerging markets, and where you're still finding opportunities in that space. Yeah, so the the emerging market view has really changed for us a, a lot because of this shift in the currency outlook. So what you had had for a very long time was relatively benign emerging market currency volatility in an environment where the yields that you were getting for taking that currency volatility by buying the locally denominated currency debt was relatively attractive, upwards of 150, even if we go back further, 200 basis points above treasury debt, when treasury debt was very low. Now, more recently, what what have we seen? We've seen both sides of the argument towards local currency move against the local mm -hmm. currency view, which is currency volatility is higher, so the risks to currency are much more apparent. And the extra yield that you're getting relative to the hard currency alternatives has narrowed. So that's shifted our emerging market focus a bit back towards hard currency alternatives, where hard currency spreads and yields had moved up making them more attractive relative to other credit alternatives where you're not taking the currency risk. So that's the shift for us. It's still a, it's a neutral view because it's an overall portfolio wide view because we're overweight emerging market equities on my colleague's mm -hmm. side of the equity side. So we're taking the risk more on the emerging market debt uh, equity side than on the debt side. Well, just to that point, Jeff, I mean, isn't this the time when you hear the word crisis, shouldn't that make you smile as an investor? 
and say, okay, let's figure out how to take advantage of this opportunity because it's not about people liking you. It's about helping people make money. And if you've got a crisis, you try to figure out a way to take advantage of it. Maybe you don't go in all whole hog, but you know, you, you, you find something that might be mispriced. Well, it, it absolutely does if you have risk budget for that. Now, unfortunately, as we go into these markets, what are the things that we see is a lot of people were very long risk. So crisis is is good if you're a contrarian investor, which meant that two weeks ago when everybody was very happy, you were saying, well, I'm going to take risk down. And, and, and the reason why you do that is so you have opportunities to add to risk in an environment where risk is going up. That's for very high frequency kind of trading type strategies. I think the, the broader, longer-term message of, of crises is it's a reminder that markets have risk, emerging markets have risk, uh, stable markets have risk, and, and to review your portfolio to say, is this the kind of allocation, the kinds of weightings that I'm really comfortable with? One of our big themes for 2018 relative to 17 is 17 was a very low-risk environment. It was the lowest equity volatility ever. Now you're seeing it much higher. Thanks very much. Much appreciated. Jeff Rosenberg, BlackRock Chief Fixed Income Strategist. He's a pro when it comes to radio as well as fixed income. Much appreciated. Joining us now to talk about issues such as China, trade, NAFTA, TPP, as well as other international issues, is Stefan Selig. He is the former Undersecretary for International Trade for the International Trade Administration. He is currently the managing partner of uh, Bridge Park Advisors, had a career that spans not only uh, international uh, relations, but also uh, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, where he was Executive Vice Chairman. Stefan, thank you very much for being here. Um, let's get thank your you thoughts right now on the state of trade talks between the United States and China. What do you believe is actually going on? Well, you know, the um, uh, Secretary of uh, Commerce, Wilbur Ross, is headed there at the end of this week um, for some follow-on discussions um, uh, to um, uh, deal with a whole host of issues, including the um, uh, tariffs um, that have been uh, discussed. And so I think it's going to continue to be fluid and ongoing. What I don't expect to see PIM is some big grand bargain coming anytime soon because these are complicated issues they're going to take time to uh, address and like in most diplomacy I think you're going to see incremental progress and not um, uh, some panacea. Do, speaking of incremental progress what incremental progress would you expect right so not a grand bargain but are there specific product areas where you can see true resolution within the next six months, even 12 months. That the well, Gina, I, I would hope it would be the exact opposite, because if I think if they focus on specific products and have a mm -hmm. shopping list, right. that they're fundamentally not getting at the right issues. So great if they get China to buy more soybeans. They already buy $12 billion of our $22 billion crop. Great if they buy some more LNG. But frankly, this is a commodity product that we're likely to have sold to another market anyway. What they should be doing is focusing on the important structure issues like um, the joint venture requirements, the investment restrictions, uh, the theft and counterfeiting, counterfeiting of intellectual property. And so unless they get at those structural issues, I'm fearful that actually that not much long-term progress will be made. Right. ZTE Corp. 
Uh, is it normal for a specific company to garner so much attention within the context of trade talks? Um, well, Pim, you know, they were bad actors and they got caught red-handed uh, violating our laws. In fact, this happened when I was the Undersecretary of Commerce in 2016. Um, and uh, we, as you know, um, had sanctions on countries, including uh, Iran and North Korea. And as a result of that, they were prohibited from including U.S. products in um, uh, their products that they sold to those countries. And they went ahead and did it, and they went ahead and did it knowingly. They got caught. They paid a fine. They agreed to certain measures. And in fact, they didn't follow up on what they had agreed to do. So now this is coming back. And uh, apparently now, rather than close them down, uh, there's going to be an additional fine of over a billion dollars. There's going to be a forced change of management. And there's going to be some uh, real stringent oversight um, uh, going forward. Um, that is separate and distinct from this issue of using those telecom equipment products to spy on U.S. companies. Uh, this is really just a matter of law, and I think it's gonna—I think it's a uh, gonna play out over uh, the next few weeks. Stefan, you have some really strong opinions on this focus on the bilateral trade deficit by the administration and how that potentially, I guess, presents a sort of false argument. Maybe you can talk us through that focus and how it should shift to really achieve any meaningful reform. Yeah, I mean, Gina, I think, first of all, thinking of uh, our trade deficit as a scorecard, it just makes no sense. Um, uh, it is not. And then in fact, the deficit, um, our trade deficit is caused by a whole host of things, but it's not caused by our global competitiveness. It's caused by investment uh, and savings rate in respective countries. And it's caused by um, the fact that the United States is the world's reserve currency. I would also add to that, to your point, focusing on that deficit bilaterally with one particular company makes no sense. I mean, you run a trade surplus with Bloomberg every month when they pay you, and you run a trade deficit with your dry cleaner every month when you pay them. And so thinking about this that narrowly is a mistake. And I go back to um, not using it as a scorecard, but focusing on the real long-term structural issues. And at the top of that list are going to be issues that we have with China, given the importance and size of that economy. Do you believe we're going to get a renegotiated NAFTA? Well, um, it certainly is not proceeding um, as smoothly as one would have hoped. Um, I'm not particularly fearful, Pim, that um, we're going to withdraw from NAFTA because the consequences, I think, would be um, profound and severe. I think the administration has heard from companies in industries across the United States, as well as our farmers and our ranchers, how important the Mexican and Canadian markets uh, are to them. Uh, so while I think it hopefully gets um, uh, modernized, because this is, don't forget, a 25-year-old agreement, um, I'm fearful that the asks that the current United States trade representative has put in place, representative, trade representative Lighthizer, are so aggressive that it's unlikely to get, be able to get resolved in the near term. And, and as you know, we also have uh, both our and their political calendar. They have an upcoming presidential election on July 1st. We have our midterm elections. So my fear is that this gets pushed out into the future and the can gets kicked down the road, as opposed to making the sort of progress that we should have been able to make with two of our most important allies uh, and friends. Thank you very much for spending time with us, being with us this morning. Uh, Stefan Selig, uh, he is a managing partner of uh, Bridge Park Advisors, former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Trade, uh, giving us uh, some detailed information about uh, how trade talks are progressing or alternatively not progressing. 
Dean <laughs> Kernett is the Chief Executive Officer for Macro Risk Advisors. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. And I want to welcome, of course, all of our Bloomberg listeners uh, in Boston, 1061 Boston Newburyport, and uh, 991 in Washington, 960 San Francisco, and 119 Sirius. Dean, are you panicking or are you celebrating? Well, I don't think it's a reason yet to panic. Um, Pim, I think you make a really good point, which is there are uh, more often not, than not, these events tend to be uh, more idiosyncratic to a specific uh, asset class or region. Uh, we, we've seen these types of um, risk-off events in you know a particular area um, start to get priced in more broadly into, let's say, th- uh, U.S. stocks, uh, but then ultimately f- fizzle out. Um, I think the market's uh, trying to do its best to sort of probability weight uh, the potential for uh, something to get transmitted uh, more broadly. Uh, so I think that's that's what you're seeing is the the sell-off in, in U.S. equities and the rise in the VIX are um, some discounting of potential future outcomes. Um, that being said, uh, I certainly woke up this morning and was quite alarmed by just the size, the sheer magnitude of the move. Uh, in Italian sovereigns, the massive sell-off in bank stocks in in Europe. Um, if you're not an expert in Italian politics, which I certainly am not, you look to asset prices to tell you about severity. And this is certainly um, the asset price move is telling you that people very much care uh, about what, what's happening as the situation unfolds. So when you think about that feedback loop, if we, if we very much care about um, what's happening in Europe and it, it will ultimately impact the U.S. equity market. How do you navigate that, both short-term, tactically, and long-term, um, in your strategies? Well, I think the first thing is, and, and so our firm, Macro Risk Advisors, tends to focus uh, very much on option-based strategies, and oftentimes clients will look to us to help them um, design hedging trades. Um, hedging is, uh, I think, a uh, undervalued discipline, uh, but certainly something that. Uh, for example, throughout last year, if you tried to hedge, even as the VIX was quite low, uh, you would have been quite early uh, to calling calling the risk-off event. So you have to be careful when you get defensive uh, because you can over-allocate option premium uh, and spend a lot of money in the sideways. Uh, and as I said earlier, most of the time these situations have, have boiled over. Uh, but I think uh, collectively, uh, investors' antenna should be, uh, risk antenna should be up at this point. Um, we certainly have a situation in which the U.S. economy continues to do well. U.S. corporate earnings are, are the, the foundation uh, of asset prices. Uh, but at the same time, there are these complex risk cross currents. Uh, we've talked about the dollar uh, as a, a sort of international VIX, I think, that uh, can be destabilizing, especially for EM. Um, and, um, you know, you've got at this uh, sort of at a given time a lot of international negotiation, uh, North Korea. Iran, uh, China with tariffs. So there's a lot of stuff uh, happening. And uh, this meltdown in in Italian sovereigns, I think, just adds to the mix of things to to be watchful for. Right. So you talk about um, size factor in some of your work recently and your preference for small caps over large caps. And that's certainly played out very well and certainly in your favor so far this year. But it strikes me as really intriguing that at some point, if investors are flocking to the dollar, it's a consequence of risk. Right? It's a consequence of um, depleting risk tolerance or, or decreasing risk tolerance. Yeah. And yet small caps carry a very high level of risk. Will yeah. ultimately the dollar rally 
work to the detriment of the small cap trade and how do you navigate that right so it's a good it's a good point our our favoring of things like iwm as a as kind of placeholder for being law in the market uh, certainly was with the recognition that it's a domestic index it doesn't have uh, as much uh, this is the russell 2000 the right russell the et 2000. of the exchange traded fund for the russell 2000 exactly yes um so uh, because the small caps tend to be very domestically centric, they're not as exposed to a rising dollar. Uh, but Gina, your point is very well taken that um, if the scenario of a rising dollar is, to, is what causes a significant risk-off event, it's just hard to say that any, uh, anything holds up right, re- really right. well. Um, so, th- so this was uh, a recommendation for if you're going to be long um, and you don't think the dollar is set to spike. And our work on the dollar suggests that we think tactically you can see it continue to rise, um, but we're staring at these massive twin deficits. And so, from a longer-term standpoint, um, you know, our work suggests that uh, the the, do- the, do- the strong dollar story, while tactically appealing, um, we just don't see it, just given the the size of the you know capital and current account deficits that the U.S. is set to run. You don't think that we can just get people to lend us more money? We, we can, <laughs> uh, or, we, yeah. or they could raise the, the, taxes, or yeah. you could have economic growth that right. then increases tax revenue. Uh, why? I mean, since we print the currency, yeah. w- why is that a problem? No, I don't think it is a problem. I, I think that uh, it's just a reality that we've never. Uh, if you were to look at a um, a chart of the unemployment rate versus the size of the deficit, we're in no man's land right now. Four um, percent unemployment and a trillion dollar deficit. This is these two have never coexisted before. Um, so we're we're a uh, you know consumer of uh, of capital in terms of you know in, from from a dollar standpoint. Um, and if you just if you look at charts over a long period of time, there's actually a, a reasonably strong correlation between um, the year over year change in the dollar and the size of the of the twin deficit. And that, so that's a longer term um, issue. And again, I think tactically. Uh, there's certainly a risk that the dollar continues to rise and it's destabilizing for asset prices. What What is market neutral momentum? Yeah, uh, so market neutral momentum is, uh, and you guys have built just a, an incredibly powerful uh, page. It's called FTW, which is for factors uh, on, on Bloomberg. We didn't pay you to do that either. <laughs> See, well, we're using it. Uh, we're, we're benefiting from it. So market neutral momentum is, uh, it's a it's a factor. So momentum is what what is momentum? It's uh, bo- it's the winners, right? So it's it's the uh, observation that winning stocks continue to win and losing stocks continue to lose. Uh, what market neutral momentum does is it takes the sometimes the quintile, so the 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 you know uh, strongest momentum stocks and the uh, least strong momentum stocks, and it cr- creates a long short portfolio. Um, so it's it's got no uh, market beta. It's just got exposure to the momentum factor, which is the past performance, uh, and it continues to do uh, incredibly well. It's embodied in big cap tech, tech stocks. It, it is Facebook. It is Netflix. Um, you know, it's it's the behemoth that continues to uh, underpin a lot of the market capitalization growth in U.S. equities. So um, this has done what up nine percent so far this year. It's tremendous. Does this and this is a portfolio that you're running right now? No, this is a, this is a factor. Okay. Um, we we would argue that uh, momentum, just because it's been so good to people for so long, uh, is one of the risks that um, investors are vulnerable to. Um, 
When you look at the allocation, for example, to passive strategies last year, Vanguard took in $360 billion of new capital. I mean, even Jack Bogle is saying this is this is insane. Um, but Vanguard uh, just uh, does not read the newspaper. They just buy Apple because it's the biggest stock. Mm -hmm. So indexation uh, is largely a momentum strategy because it buys the winners, right, that have the biggest caps. Thanks very much for being with us. Very illuminating. Much appreciated. Dean Kernett is the chief executive of Macro Risk Advisors. And risk, I think, is going to be the word of the day. Risk when it comes to Italian debt. Diane Swank is our guest, chief economist for Grant Thornton. Diane, uh, if you were in Michigan, you were paying over $3 a gallon for gasoline, as many people are in the country. Do you believe that that is going to show up in what people are able to put away? Because we're going to get some personal spending numbers later on in the week. Yes, I do. In fact, um, our analysis is that the depending on how long these higher gas prices at the pump linger, we do know that Saudi Arabia has started to turn the spigot back, or at least promised to turn the spigot back on. Even as much as we're seeing production in the U.S., it just simply can't make up for what Saudi Arabia has in spare capacity. And so our analysis is that we've already eliminated much of the tax cuts with higher prices at the pump for middle and lower income households. Those um, tax cuts average, when you get into the middle income um, households, about $800 per household, about half of that's being wiped out already by higher prices at the pump. For low-income households, the lowest wage earners, their tax cuts are only $40 a year. So, of course, they've already seen major loss in earnings. And what's really important is with the higher prices at the pump is it also affects things like housing, mobility, people's ability to take higher-paying jobs, because anything they gain in terms of a paycheck gets wiped out in terms of how far they have to drive and higher commute costs. So we certainly are crossing our fingers that Saudi Arabia will go through and actually continue to turn on the spigots and bring those prices back down, and it will show up at the pump over the summer so that we can get people in the jobs they need to be in and not have to turn down higher-paying jobs because it's eating away in their commute costs. Diane, I just had a pleasure of reading your note, No Place Like Home, in which you review the prospects for the U.S. consumer, of course, mentioning gas prices as a critical component as well as income. But the one other thing that you dive into quite a bit is how much consumers are t starting to tap into their homes again to support their spending patterns. Why don't you talk us through a little bit about what you're seeing in home equity lines of credit growth and how the consumer is utilizing credit markets once again to sustain spending? Well, up until now, that's a great question. And up until now, we had seen people doing cash-out refinancing to do remodeling. And this is where a lot of areas, baby boomers and older homeowners, Gen X homeowners, are now adding and remodeling and repairing their homes instead of trading up. That's also leaving us with short supply, but they are investing in their homes again, and they're doing it by tapping into either the cash-out refinancing or now home equity lines of credit, which are coming back. The good news is there's more safeguards than there once were, and that is that 
that you can't take out more than, you know, leave yourself with less than 20% in your home in most cases. Although that said, it's interesting is even though there's been a change in the tax laws, which limits the deductibility of those home equity lines of credit to actually remodeling and putting money into your home, the signs are seen on the street. And I actually published one without the bank's name on it right in the middle of LaSalle Street in downtown Chicago. The advertisements were for a third honeymoon, a trip to your to Rome, um, you know, braces for your kid, band camp. It was really um, sort of a flashback to 2005 and the idea that you would use your home as an ATM. And what we don't know is how easy credit conditions are going to get, not by the banks per se, although they're trying to make up the fees lost to refinancing, which have now fallen, but also more importantly to the shadow banking industry, which so far hasn't been really aggressive in the home equity line of credit market. But once they can't get those refinancing fees, and we have seen mortgage applications are not what they could be because we don't have enough supply in the market and prices are going up fairly rapidly, that could see a flip-flop and you could see many more people tapping into it. We're already at very low rates on the saving rate. When you see home equity lines of credit go up, that's going to push the saving rate even lower. It's at 3% right now. The record low is 2.4%, which we hit in December because of all the insurance and sort of rebuilding after hurricanes. But that was the lowest rate since 2005. When you look at the general risk of this evolving credit landscape, banks getting a little easier on credit allocation, particularly with respect to homes, the consumer leaning on credit a little bit more, saving less, what are the trigger points that make you really concerned, right? Because we we tend to talk about, oh, these things are changing, but it's not a huge risk. It's not going to push us into recession. At what point do you say, okay, this is it? We've gotten to a point where we now really need to worry about home equity. Is it rates are a certain um, level or is it outstanding debt reaches a certain level? Is it the unemployment rate that shifts? What are your big triggers for? Well, the unemployment rate's a lagging indicator and defaults is something so far they've been pretty low with the exception of vehicle defaults and student defaults. And student defaults have actually come down off their highs, but um, we don't know what's out there. And once we start, you often get teaser rates on these home equity lines of credit, right? And so the first year you're fine. But what we'll really be watching for is a year from now is what happens as those rates flip, and we will likely have a much higher rate environment. How much is that going to stress these homeowners? Also, I think it's really important is that we watch very carefully how much um, people move back into flexible rate mortgages instead of fixed rate mortgages. It seems completely counterintuitive to go towards shorter-term interest rate mortgages when rates are going up, but that's exactly what people do. You know, one of the things, having been in credit for 19 years, of my 30-year career in a bank, I used to always warn our credit people is the best way to die is in debt because it means you've gamed the system and you've lived beyond your means your entire life. And that's what I always worry about is the accumulation of debt. And we're doing it even though we're not at the highest levels relative to income that we've seen since that crisis, we have taken off that excess debt. We're at 2003 levels. That was still a peak prior to the housing buildup. And we had already taken on too high a debt buildup before the housing bubble. Diane Swank, uh, can I just shift your attention to uh, one of the pieces of information we're going to get when we look at the labor report, which is prime age uh, male labor force participation rate. How many people are actually uh, working? Uh, Can you give us your thoughts there and whether you believe that this is a a structural trend that is going to have really nasty implications for, uh, for the economy? 
It's a great question. It's one of the ones we most worry about as economists. We have seen us come off the lows in participation from the crisis, but we're still on a downward trend since the peak in prime age, particularly, as you pointed out, male labor force participation, but also women. Um, Women's labor force participation among that 25 to 54-year-old group is now lower in the United States than Japan. Now, they include more part-time women workers, but these are things we really worry about because as we are not able to bring as many people back from the sidelines because of chronic problems like the opioid crisis, a huge erosion in skills, people who have just simply not been invested in, in terms of their human capital, their education, to work the kind of jobs we're working today, and all the burden to train is on individual employers. I see it with my clients every time. Their biggest challenge is they train people, and then they get poached, and these are people that they're paying sign-in bonuses to, they're increasing their wages, and they're paying for their training, but unlike higher-level education, things like an MBA or things like that where a company can sort of require you to pay that back over a period of time. If you train a trucker to be a trucker, they can be taken away from you overnight by a competitor next door. Well, and this is also something that if you take a look at what's going on in Italy, they also have uh, matched the yeah. United States for low male uh, prime age participation. Not exactly good company there in Italy, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, this is really serious. And, you know, the, the things that we worry about is how much of it is structural and how much of it is cyclical. The cyclical component looks like it's, you know, starting to play out. We really are bringing some of those people back that got hit hardest but, you know, could come back into the labor force. But this is a real issue going forward because by 2020, if we eliminate immigration, and we are cutting immigration quite dramatically, it's already down, legal immigration is already down quite dramatically from a year ago, that's the administration's desire. If you eliminate immigration by 2020, just the aging of the labor force and the natural trends, the sort of structural trend we see in labor force participation by um, men in particular gets you to a contraction in the labor force by 2020. That's only two years away. That's something we want to avoid because we really want to re-engage these workers on the sideline. We want to, we don't want to lose people. The opioid crisis has so many collateral damage, but that's only one of many things that are affecting incarceration rates or affecting prime age male participation. All of those things together, there are fixes, but there's no soundbite fixes, and a good economy alone does not lift all boats. Thank you very much. Diane Swank is the chief economist for Grant Thornton. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.